This is the Anatomy of a Scream Pod Squad Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of 28 Days Later. I am one of your hosts, Sophie, joined by my absolutely stunning and bubbly co-host and sister, Hannah. (laughs) I really really just had such a moment of like, wait, am I bubbly? (laughs) Here's the thing. Uh, We may have some new listeners this week, but usually I try to think of a fun adjective to describe Hannah. The problem is I always forget to do it until I'm in the middle of the introduction and at my home office, I usually have a big stack of books in front of me, so I can kind of like look at the books in front of me and see if anything jumps out. But the home office has been converted into my fiance's home office, and he's very sparse, so there's no books, and I panicked. Um, but I, I think you're bubbly. I guess I'll take it. Like, there's definitely been, I mean, at this point, too, we've been doing this for a little while, so you've definitely gone through a whole list of uh, adjectives that I feel like describe me better, but I'll take bubbly. Here's the thing. I think people hear bubbly and they think like Elle Woods, right? Like ditzy and bubbly, which I don't think you are, but you do have this very like all-encompassing like energy and warmth that to me reminds me of like drinking a really nice cold soda on a hot day where you're just like, this has filled my entire soul and I'm happy. (laughs) Like a Mr. Pibb. Exactly. Um So, this is our very first episode after joining the Anatomy of a Scream pod squad. So, some of you may have never listened to us before. So, let me give you a little bit of a background. So, Hannah and I are sisters, and we both love horror movies, and we both love shit-talking. So, we decided (laughs) that we really wanted to create a podcast that felt like if you were just at brunch with some of your girlfriends, just, like, talking about the most recent scary movie you saw. Um... Both of us, being female horror fans, are aware of the fact that, especially within mainstream conversations about horror, there's not a ton of space if you aren't, like, a cis straight white guy. So we wanted to be able to have those broader conversations about the genre, but sort of keep it light uh, and definitely not safe for work. Uh, Am I leaving anything out, Hannah? Does that sound pretty fair? (laughs) Yes, definitely. And a lot Um, of uh, body fluids. So many body fluids. And listen, if you're a new listener, you've probably never met Hannah and I. Uh, you're going to know a lot about us. You're going to learn so many things. And if you're new, you may not know that our parents listen to this podcast. That's the kind of boundaries we have with our family. Um, so just like get into it. Sort of like jump in if you're listening to this at a time when you can do so. Maybe like have a glass of champagne. Just like get a glass of wine, drink a beer, whatever's your jam. Or just listen sober while you're at work and feel like you're at brunch with your girlfriends. We just really want to create that atmosphere for you. We want to be bubbly, Hannah. (laughs) Well, we used to do uh, Bloody Marys as a kind of like a jumping off point. um, But I have since had to cut them out of my diet because my tummy monster. Yeah, Hannah is now on a no nightshade diet, which sounds like fun and sexy and kind of witchy, but it's really just like she can't have potatoes or tomatoes and lots of other things that are fun. So uh, we've cut out our Bloody Mary intro up top, although we do use a Bloody Mary ranking system at the end, which you'll hear. Mm-hmm. 
Um, I did think of you, Hannah. I made something potato-based for dinner tonight, and it was so good. And then all of a sudden I got really sad, and I was like, oh, man, Hannah can't eat taters. Yeah, potatoes especially because I really did love them so much. And they can do so many things and be used so many different ways. And, yeah. (laughs) I'm still waiting for a horror movie where we get, like, a mutant potato or something like that. I'd be very – like, something that would be vindicating for you, you know? Like, just, like, a literal potato monster. Well, I don't know if it's, like, spoiler alert, but, like, I do feel like the way my stomach feels when I eat a potato is kind of, like, the sort of like a tummy monster that we see in the movies that we're talking about today. (laughs) Uh, That is fantastic. So before I tell everybody what movie we're getting ready to talk about, uh, we like to just, like, shoot the shit a little bit up top, you know, like you're at brunch. And uh, I didn't tell Hannah I was going to do this beforehand because I wasn't thinking about it, but I do just want to call out that Hannah and I actually got to have brunch together in person last weekend. We do not live in the same city. And we got to have brunch at one of my favorite, I hope to say our favorite, Chicago spots, and then go see Fast 9, my apologies, F9. Hmm. Um, And we had the distinct displeasure of sitting in a packed movie theater on a Saturday afternoon and being seated next to the one woman in the universe who didn't realize that, like, you don't watch Fast and Furious movies quietly. Um, she did not like us. Ew, yeah, she was not a fan of how loud we were being. Although I will say, packed is a bit of a stretch. Like, pe- there was definitely, I mean, it's my first time being in a movie theater in, you know, like over a year. And it definitely was, like, more people than I was expecting. But it wasn't like we were, like, completely... You know, like For there was, sure. You know, space a lot in between. It was people. like post COVID packed. We were about fifty percent full. Yeah, exactly. So it yeah. felt safe but exciting. So it felt like, yeah, fell to the brim. <laughs> <laughs> um, but what have you been up to, Hannah? Since I last saw you. Um, well, I had a brunch for Pride on Sunday since there was no parade in Chicago. Um, there is going to be one in October. They like rescheduled it, but. Um, I mean, having it in Chicago means people can break out more of their rainbow clothing, like stuff that's too warm to wear in June might really, really kill in October. That's true. Although I feel like often a point of pride too is like, or a part of pride is to be wearing like very, as like little clothes as possible. Yeah. Like the skin is part of it for sure. Like, you know, I was with you when I bought this outfit that I'm, like, saving for Pride one day. Yes. That's, like, um, I mean, literally looks like it may have been made for a drag queen and is, like, a matching, like, bra and, like, underwear set with a rainbow over. I mean, it's, like, I can't even describe it because if I even It's, try, like, it's a like, lot of mesh and, like, iridescent rainbows yes, and clouds. Like the- and yeah, and clouds, and it's like the, and I did this year wear like a bra that I have that has rainbows over the nipples, and I wore it like under a, a, like a sheer white t-shirt, so it kind of looked like I had like rainbow pasties on, um, and like the rainbows on, on this outfit are not like that, they're kind of like, they're not where you'd expect them to be, um, <laughs> the rainbows on that outfit really keep you guessing, but like that mm-hmm. I doubt I would be able to wear in like October, but we'll see, but I believe this- in you. All of this is to say that um, we had a potluck instead. Um, 
and a couple of my friends were trying to bring um, just, like, really anyone and bring a lot of friends together, but also, like, you know, a bit of, like, bringing girls for me to possibly meet. Um, And there was a girl that I met that I really liked who um, was also, like, very nervous, I could tell, and she promptly uh, proceeded to knock a platter of deviled eggs into, like, this, I've got this, like, inflatable, almost like a baby pool, but smaller, that you can use for, like, basically as a cooler, and um, she knocked over this plate of rainbow deviled eggs that my friend Emma had made into the cooler, and um, in an effort to soothe maybe some of the anxiety that she was feeling after this entrance, I wanted to show like it wasn't that big of a deal. So I ate two of the deviled eggs out of the cooler. <laughs> like that were like floating. You were bobbing for deviled eggs, essentially. Basically, which is like not a, not a tradition I recommend anybody take up from now on as like a, a like, you know, like we have bobbing for apples at Halloween. We don't need to bob for deviled eggs. For Especially Friday. if you're, if it's like a specifically not a pride tradition, like nobody needs to be bobbing for Eggs that have been out in the heat and are now submerged in ice water. And also the eggs were rainbow. So there was that. Um, but, yeah, definitely nobody needs that. And I definitely didn't need that because I promptly uh, gave myself basically, like, food poisoning for, like, two days after that. Mm. Um, or at least... That's what it's been feeling like the last couple days. Like, I couldn't keep any food down for, like, the whole entire day afterwards and then didn't eat for about 24 hours. So then the next day was really rough and day three and I'm still not okay. So (laughs) that's how you wanted to finish out Pride Month, right? was, like, really, like, really just uh, feeling terrible. (laughs) (laughs) Did I want to go out, like, did I want to end Pride Month with a giant potluck with all my friends that I love and getting a bunch of new friends to meet each other? Absolutely. Did I think that that would end with me getting into a fight with a straight male friend of mine um, uh, about his struggle being a straight white male and then getting food poisoning for three days? I did not foresee that being a part of <laughs> the celebration. Yeah, I mean, that that feels pretty unfair. Uh, it's not great. It's not great. I will say, though, one good thing that came out of all of this is that if you don't call your period egg water from now on, like, what did I do any <laughs> of this for? <laughs> um, famously, I'm on birth control, so I don't have a period anymore, but I can't wait to have one again so I can call it egg water. When you can just say, like, ugh, the egg water is a flowin'. <laughs> oh, Jesus. Oh, uh, there's really no way to transition out of this. So I'm just going to say, because I forgot to say earlier, to our listeners who have been with us for a long time, you might be like, wow, you're in a new podcast feed. Maybe you don't know what Anatomy of a Scream is. Let's talk about it. Anatomy of a Scream is a really rad website. Hannah and I are both fans of the website and uh, the website's, I don't know, like, I just want to call her the first lady. I'm sure that there's a better title for her. (laughs) Priestess. We adore her. (laughs) High Priestess. 
Um, and it just felt like a really good home for us because the, and the idea of Anatomy of a Scream is to have like a place that is made up of feminist perspectives and is queer friendly and is just more inclusive than I think a lot of horror commentary can be. So we're very excited to be here. Uh, and while this episode is going to be releasing in July, we really wanted to cover something special for Pride and for our move to Anatomy of a Scream. So this week, Hannah and I are going to be talking about the documentary Scream Queen, My Nightmare on Elm Street, which is about Mark Patton's experience uh, filming A Nightmare on Elm Street 2, Freddy's Revenge in 1985, and sort of the backlash that came afterwards. So I want to rewind a little bit and give people a peek behind the curtain. The initial plan was just to discuss Nightmare 2, which Hannah had never seen. So Hannah and my fiancé and I watched this movie together about a week ago. And then I was going to watch the documentary for background. But after I watched, I was like, you got to watch it too. It's really great. And then we can talk about that. Um, But let's start, Hannah, with your response to watching uh, Freddy's Revenge and just sort of where you were how that went for you watching that movie? Um, well, let me start off by saying that it was, uh, you know, we only get to see each other in person every couple months. Um, and that, that often includes some heavy drinking. So I was pretty, Hannah, this is a Christian podcast and we do not drink alcohol. (laughs) Um, we are chaste and we don't drink alcohol here. And Um, we certainly never talk about our periods. Oops. (laughs) <laughs> we we never speak about our egg water. Um, but I was very drunk, so I want to preface this by saying, like, in case I make anybody angry, I, it was partially induced by the alcohol intake. But um, I did – well, I, th- I loved – I did enjoy watching the movie, and I enjoyed, like, how ridiculous and campy it was. Um, I was – as a queer person, I was – like partly troubled by the message mm-hmm. um and i got very sad at the end of the movie um because if you've seen the movie um basically this character is like having to like give up his gayness in order to have like a happy ending mm-hmm. um and that made me very sad um in the very drunken state I was in. Yeah, you were basically like, hey, Sophie, why would you make me watch this for pride? <laughs> it's like, and he be, he pretended to be straight and everything was fine. Happy pride. Yeah, I was like, I, yeah, I was like, just, um, yeah, like, it, that part of it made me sad. I was like, it makes me sad that this movie didn't even come out that long ago, that that wasn't even that long ago that people felt this way, that it's Mm -hmm. happening right now, that people still feel this way, that there are people who are as tormented as this character by their sexuality. And I hate that. I hate the message being that you'd have to give that up or pretend to be something you're not in order to get a happy ending. Um, So, that part of it made me sad, but um, watching the documentary about it definitely also had a huge impact on me mm-hmm. um, and really gave me another appreciation for for the movie itself and for the people who made it. So 
part of why I had picked this movie for Hannah selfishly is that I had really wanted a reason to watch the documentary. Uh, it's a shutter exclusive. It had been sitting in my watch list for a long time and I had seen Freddy's revenge a couple times in the past. And it's always been one of my favorites in the franchise. I know that for a lot of diehard nightmare on Elm street fans, it is their least favorite. Um, if that's true of you, you might be homophobic or maybe you're very strict about the rules, which I guess is also fine. But for me, Nightmare on Elm Street was never a franchise that I was super emotionally connected to in the way that I am to the Halloween franchise. And so I loved how just like off the walls and campy this movie is. Um, And I sort of loved watching it as a very straight woman, how like unapologetically queer it was. But it did not... It is very important to note, I think, that like at no point watching this movie, I was definitely like, oh man, this messaging is kind of messed up. At no point was I was like, oh, this movie might bum Hannah out as a queer person. And I remember watching it with you and just being like, well, I feel so bad that it didn't even occur to me. Like for me, this has always been like a fun, campy movie. And I love that like none of the gayness of this movie is subtext. It's all like very, very much text. And that part's been very like fun and enjoyable for me without recognizing sort of like what the implications could be of the overall messaging beyond an academic reading of like, this is a not a great way for this messaging to go. Um, so it was really, really good to get to watch it with you. Um, and as you noted, like we were both intoxicated when we watched it. And so I actually watched it again after I got back to Kansas City and took a bunch of notes um, on this movie, which is not actually going to be the focus of our discussion. Um, but like, but it's I just, also a good introduction into kind of how our podcast runs for anyone who's new, right. is that Sophie does a lot of notes, Sophie does a lot of homework, Sophie's very <laughs> prepared and professional, and I really work hard not to burp on microphone yeah hannah comes in like flying kick full gas just like ready to go i mean like pedal to the metal and also she's gonna burp like we're we're here we're here for it um so like i actually upon a closer viewing again i've seen this movie several times but this most recent watch after watching it with you is when i sort of paid the most attention to things and i think there is some really interesting stuff going on with the messaging um A lot of it's problematic, and I don't mean to minimize that in any way. But, like, what is really – maybe what I learned overall or what, like, stuck out overall is that, like, in the end, he thinks – or the movie thinks – the movie wants you to believe in the end that what Jesse needs to do to survive and have a happy ending is, like, be straight and love Lisa – But that doesn't save him. Like, in the end, he still ends up exactly where the movie started, which I kind of love. Like, it does not undo the other problematic shit that the movie does. But it is kind of interesting that the movie sort of uh, undermines its own premise by being like, well, actually, he did what he's quote unquote supposed to do. And Freddy's still going to fuck him. Like, he still can't get away from Freddy. He can't, like, escape uh, his, he can't escape that part of himself, right? Because ultimately, Freddy ends up being like the manifestation of his sexuality that he can't come to terms with. 
And it's like, yeah, uh, trying to subvert that and make yourself be with a woman is not actually going to make it go away. Yeah, well, and I found something, like, well, I don't know how exactly we're going to, like, bob and weave in between the two movies, but... Let's just go for it. Just tell me what you're thinking. Um, well, for one thing, because I, I found the movie to be, like, beautiful and heart-wrenching and amazing, and oh my god, I'm about to burp. <clears throat> oh, new listeners, I'm so sorry she muted so you didn't get to hear it. Oh my god, I'm trying to be professional. Um, so... When like, you said the movie was beautiful, you mean Scream Queen and not... Yes, I mean the documentary. I kay. mean, I mean, both and. No, but, um... <laughs> When the writer of the movie in the documentary, and I don't know if I'm jumping too far ahead, but when he admitted that he included the storyline um, or included the sex, like the sexuality mm-hmm. of the character and his like struggle to accept it, that he did that on purpose because he thought in the same way that the first movie was scary because of, like, you know, you're never not, you're not safe even in your dreams. He was trying to take it a step further. And he was like, this is a time when it was truly terrifying to be gay. Mm -hmm. And, and like, I thought that would be a smart thing to work into the movie because it would be like, what if the thing you're most scared of or what if, like, the version of another, like, more heightened version of you're not even safe in your own dreams is like you're not even safe in your own sexuality. You're not even safe in your own right. skin. Right. And like for him to say that and articulate it was really interesting to me because it's not something that like my first watch of it, I was like this is sad. Like this makes me feel like whoever made this movie was like being gay is like hilarious and like doesn't make any sense. <laughs> right. Um and scary, like, for everybody else, like, that the, like, that the gay person in the room is going to, like, infect and attack everyone. Mm-hmm. Um, but to hear the writer say, like, that it was an intentional choice to play off of that actually very real fear that a lot of LGBTQ plus people have um, in their in their own journeys of coming to terms with their sexuality um was really really changed a lot of my viewing of of the of the film itself like the actual nightmare on elm street movie and like yeah and the journey of the character and also you might be thinking that because we had to watch two movies for this week that for once i will be able to remember anyone's name and you'd be wrong. I don't know. I got your back. Name. And I got your back. And in this, I got like I got people's character names and their real names said. I mean, twice as often, and I still don't know. I mean, like I almost forgot Freddy Krueger's name for a second. <laughs> you were like, I think his name's Miguel. He works for Postmates. Yeah. Um, so let's just like set our baseline. So our main character in Nightmare on Elm Street Two: Freddy's Revenge is Jesse, played by Mark Patton. So Mark Patton is really the focus of Scream Queen. And, and then that we have Kim- I will remember because he has his name tattooed on his back like a jersey. Yeah, he does. <laughs> uh, he plays opposite Kim Myers, who plays Lisa. Kim Myers, I 
every time I watch this movie, I'm like, she looks so much like Meryl Streep. It's distracting. And whether it's true or not, the IMDb trivia says that she was cast in part because she looked so much like Meryl Streep. Um, then you have Robert Russler, who plays Grady, sort of the the foil to Lisa, right? Like, he is the other character with whom Jesse has sexual tension, ow, whether ow, or ow. not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, like, I, I am certain. I haven't Googled this. I really should have beforehand. I'm sure there is a ton of Jesse and Grady fanfic out there, and I am very about it. Like, Woo-hoo. it was not until my most recent viewing after watching with you that, like, when they are doing the, their planks early on when the coach, like, punishes them and makes them do planks, and Grady is like, oh, I heard that, like, the coach is a queer and he goes to S&M bars. And also, like, what's up with you and that girl? Are you guys, like, banging every day? And it's like, Grady is testing him. Like, he's not picking on him. He's like, I'm trying to see how you respond to these props so I can, like, get a read on you. Yes. And. <laughs> yes, and. No. <laughs> um, and selfishly, I was also um, a little excited about this because I wrote a play in high school, as Sophie knows. Um, that was a horror comedy. And Never heard of it. <laughs> I'm not familiar. <laughs> um, and one of the main characters' names was Grady, and I didn't do that on purpose because um, I had never seen this movie. So, like, little did I know that I like if I if that movie or that uh, play is ever made into a movie, someone will probably put that in the IMDb trivia. Yeah, they'll be think they'll think you'll be paying homage, and it'll be great. Um, People will think I'm the- smarter than I am, which is um, my life's goal. <laughs> the other two names I'm going to give us, which we're going to try to remember, are David Chaskin, who was the writer, and Jack Shoulder, who was the director. And they obviously come into play much more when we talk about the documentary uh, Scream Queen. I can almost promise you I'm going to say, for some reason, every time I saw it, I kept thinking his name was David Chisholm. Mm-mm. And there's like... That no is way. a person. That is a person. Yeah. Is that a bad person? Uh, he's an actor. And since you are the human IMDb, it only makes sense that you are confusing this director with another actor who's on IMDb. He, well, he's most known for, known for things I don't think you've ever seen, like NCIS, Timeless, uh, CSI New York, and Crisis. I, have no, I don't know any of those things. So I'm going to choose to believe that you are confusing him. You are mashing this guy's name up with Shirley Chisholm, uh, amazing <laughs> black activist and politician from the That's what 70s it is. And 80s. Um, let's go with that. Just go ahead and cut the other part out and just leave that part okay. in. And then Oh, again, I'm leaving it all in. <laughs> once again, you know, sm- always trying to make people think I'm smarter than I am. <laughs> <laughs> so, so let's like really meaningfully get into this. So this movie um, came out on Shudder. It's called, I always thought it was called Scream Queen, but what it's called is Scream Queen, which is brilliant. There's a really great line later on where Mark Patton sort of talks about, it's very noted by fans of the franchise that, um, that Jesse screams like a girl and that he's, you know, he, I mean, Jesse is the, our final girl in, in nightmare two. And so he got a lot of hate, um, and hate mail and harassment when the movie came out about his sexuality and about the fact that he screams like a girl. And he says something during the documentary where he's like, whenever people tell me that I'm like, 
who cares if I stream like a girl? Like I made a lot of money. Like I was the final girl and I made a lot of money. Like I got famous off this movie and like not in a cynical way. This movie, um, we'll get into it was like one step in a trajectory that should have made him incredibly famous and instead sort of ended up being a misstep that knocked him down. Um, and so for those that don't know, as we've sort of alluded to and discussed directly, Nightmare 2, Jesse is our lead character, and he is ostensibly a straight character, quotes, who has a female love interest, but he is very much coded as queer, and he has this other character, Grady, who's sort of like his friend that he butts heads with and wrestles with a lot. But a lot of this stuff is coded as very, very queer. Um, And despite the fact that this movie did well in box offices... Um, and is much beloved by lots of fans of the franchise and lots of horror fans um, at the time of its release. And since then, it has gotten a lot of negative press for the fact that it's like a quote-unquote gay horror film. And Mark Patton specifically, it sort of like ruined this wonderful career trajectory he was on. And so he sort of became a recluse for um, 25 years until the documentary Never Sleep Again came out, which sort of went through the making and background of all of the Nightmare on Elm Street movies. Um, So notably, this movie came out shortly after 2015, which was the 30-year anniversary of uh, Nightmare on Elm Street 2. And just so I can, like, like, you know, be a little famous and name drop for a second, Mm -hmm. uh, at the very beginning when he's at Horror Hound in Indianapolis, I was there that year. I did not meet meet Mark Patton. Um... But fuck, what? That's just so cool. (laughs) Oh, Hannah, it's about to get so much cooler. But Fozzie, who's interviewing him from Nightmare uh, from Night of Oh my gosh, I'm the worst. Fozzie from Night of the Living podcast is someone that was my first horror hound. I met Fozzie at that horror hound. Fozzie and I bonded because he has fucking dope Buffy tattoos. (laughs) Hannah, he has. Um, all of Giles's like transparency sketches from Hush, <gasps> tattooed like around his like uh, collarbone. Oh, cool! Yeah. Um. So like, I am buds with the Night of the Living podcast people through Bloody Good Horror, and so like when he was joking and he was like, "I'm the queer representative for Night of the Living podcast," like I just just edged out Andy. Like those are both people who I love dearly and have hung out with, and like. Shout out to Night of the Living Podcast. They recommended The Shining Bar in Cincinnati that I recently got to finally experience. Um, So literally the second they pop up, I was like, oh my God, I know them. Like, this is so exciting. Um, But it's just like, I think this documentary does a great job of sort of placing uh, and following the experience that Mark Patton has had in the years following this film being released and sort of how he has transformed his experience and how he sort of translated it to understand it in a different way. So I'm curious to hear like your initial thoughts on the documentary, having just watched it um, the other day. Um, I, yeah, like I said, it, it, it completely changed my viewing of the movie or didn't change it, but gave me another like added perspective. Enhanced my viewing would be a good way to say it. Um, yeah, I was really, very moved um, by Mark and his journey and, like, how how 
raw and very open he was about his own experience and his own struggles. Um, and especially in his um, confrontation with Shirley Chisholm. <laughs> um, or more so his discussion. Um his ability to also recognize within himself, like, it, like, areas where he had, like, put more onto this, onto this man than, like, because of his experience. Like, mm-hmm. I just thought the way that he was able to be so open about his experience and, um, like, his struggles, but also still be so aware and like so able to also accept areas where he may have been wrong um was really amazing and inspiring and to see the parts of people like him dancing and people just being like so over the moon to meet him um, yeah really like brought a a tear to my eye and um, especially the sequence where they were interviewing a lot of different um, queer folks about the experience of seeing this movie for them yeah, um, and seeing it as children and seeing it as the first time that they saw someone like them in a movie or at least in a movie like this. Um, and, you know, for all of its faults, like for that, character being the uh the final girl like what that was like for for a lot of people to experience that part like straight up made me like full-on cry um and also made me feel a little bit too like I am very lucky um I'm very lucky to have grown up in a place that I did where um you know, where our parents maybe had some opinions in the beginning that weren't so great, but that they worked mm-hmm. hard to work on. Um, and, like, like, it made me reflect a little bit, too, on my own experience. And, um, I mean, I usually think during Pride, I take – I mean, I feel a lot of Pride – about myself and where I'm at in my own life, but I also feel a lot of pride in, like, my family, um, and I feel very lucky to have the family that I have that have been very accepting of me, um, and worked to be accepting of me, and so to see the sequence of people talking about what that felt like, um, was really moving, to me, um, because, yeah, it's just, like, you know, like, I came into my queer identity a lot more, um, in, as I was older, and, mm-hmm. and so I guess, like, at that point, like, I, you know, there's, like, more, there's more movies now, there's more representation now, um, still not, <laughs> still nowhere near where it should be, um, or how I would like it to be, but, like, I had a, a moment of, like, you know, I'm really lucky to have grown up when I grew up, 
Um, and I really am ha- happy that for all of its faults that this movie exists for people who are growing up when they were growing up to have, to at least have this. Yeah, I mean, what I thought of over and over again watching this is just how beautiful and how graceful his understanding of his experience is. Um, So there's a sequence in the film where there is a, they're all at a, several of the people involved in this film are at a convention. It's like the first time that many of them have seen each other in a long time. Um, And David Chaskin, the writer, is not there. But Jack Shoulder, the director, is there, and as well as Kim Myers um, and Rick Russler. And they all go out afterwards, and um, Mark is sort of talking about his frustration. And I think a lot, while I do understand that maybe some of his anger at the general reaction got misplaced on David Chaskin. I do think that some of his frustration at David Chaskin is warranted where for all these years, David Chaskin was saying like the gay stuff was just subtext. And then because of who we cast, it became text and I never meant it for it. Like this movie. It I, would be I, virtu- say, I agree with that too. I don't think he was like yeah. totally unwarranted, but yeah, no, I know. I just like, so I think like it's interesting for the people who were involved in this movie when it came out to be like, I had no idea there was anything queer happening. It's like, that seems almost impossible to me. Like, this movie is so campy and, like, leans into its queerness so hard. I find it hard to believe that even in the 80s when those short shorts were popular, (laughs) people were like, I had no idea. Um, Yeah, I mean, I I thought, though, um, that sequence, too, of them showing individually all the different actors was a little bit too like um in all the real housewives podcasts and and everything i listen to about real house like real housewives i always note the editors for being kind of shady and yeah. i felt like that that sequence was like a little bit of like low-key shade of the editors being like come on like the people who will admit that they knew like the people who won't admit that they knew are the people where it's like come on <laughs> well, no, but that's what I mean. Is like most of the other actor. Well, I guess Kim Myers said she didn't know. Rob Russler was like, "Yeah, obviously." But what bothered me was when the the director sat down with him and was like, "I just was really not bothered, but he was like, I was really thrown off by what you said, and I feel like you are like misplacing some of your frustration. And you need to let it go." I think that ultimately it was really beautiful that. Mark Patton was able to sort of like have that conversation with David Chaskin and acknowledge that some of his anger was misplaced, but that's like not a thing that it was Jack Shoulder's place to tell him. And so like in that moment, I was so angry. I was like, how dare you tell this guy whose career was like destroyed that he just like needs to let it go. Yeah. Um, This, yeah. And this man who like was losing, friends and losing his and scared of losing his career right scared of losing his own life like that that was not you know that that's something you just need to like get over when it's convenient for others and I think that's sort of like when he said too like um the David Chaskin was like um I wish I could have been there and we could have had this conversation then and again another part another time where Mark Patton was like so beautifully self-aware he was like, so graceful. Think, so graceful. And he's like, I don't think I could have had 
this yeah. conversation then. Because um, he was like, you know, a part of me even then was like, no one will, like, still no one will say, like, I'm, I'm just sorry that that happened to you. And, and that's kind of, like, something that I needed to hear. Yeah, and, like, I, yes, exactly. And, like, throughout this documentary, I was so impressed with his ability to just be like, I am going to speak my truth whether or not you agree with it. And if you push back, I'm not just going to go, oh, you're right. Like, I will continue to tell you how I feel. Um, a lot of this reminded me, um, he talks about how after this movie came out, his agents were sort of like, well, we're going to have to typecast you for the rest of your career because you can't play straight after this movie. And it really reminded me of the letter that um, Danielle Franzis uh Daniel Franzese wrote a couple years ago. He's the guy that played Damien in Mean Girls, and he wrote a letter to Damien. Did you read this when it came out? I did not. I'm not familiar. Okay, so when it was the 10-year anniversary of Mean Girls, and Daniel Franzese um, wrote a coming-out letter and wrote it to Damien and was sort of, like, expressing how much he loved playing that character, but also how hard it was for him to play that character and then know that after that movie came out, like he was never going to be able to play a straight character again because everybody was going to be like, nope, you only play gay characters now. Um, and it's this really difficult thing that Hollywood does to actors where it's like, we are, we seem to be perfectly happy to let straight cis folks play gay and trans but if a person is gay, we're like, nope, you can only play gay characters. It's all you can do. Nobody would ever believe you as anything but that. Um, and it, it, on the one hand, was like, um, it was like, oh, it reminded me of that letter that was very touching. But it was, I mean, Mean Girls is not a new movie, but it made me really sad that that is still very much the experience for a lot of actors where they feel like they can play a role that, that they can play in a way that feels very real and genuine to them and then have someone tell them, well, you can't do anything else now because we've seen you do this. Yeah. I mean, it's I like if Jared Leto can play a trans woman and then a creepy serial killer dude, then a gay man can play a gay man and a straight man and the world will continue to turn. Well, I mean, it wasn't even, you know, that long ago. I mean, I think I was in high school. I can't remember. It was when I, yeah, it was when I was in high school because it was when, um, Oh, shoot. What's his name? Cheyenne. Um, oh, Cheyenne Jackson. When he joined 30 Rock, um, a, a writer for the New York Times wrote an article saying, or an article about how, like, gay men can't play straight actors or can't play straight characters mm -hmm. um, in the same way that straight men can play gay characters. Sir, gay actors have been playing straight for much longer than straight actors have been playing gay. Yeah, it's like arguably you think um, it's kind of like um, <laughs> you know that famous quote with uh, I think it's Jack Lemmon who did a movie with uh, Dustin Hoffman where he's supposed to be out of breath and he ran around the, the, the studio a few times yeah. before a scene and Jack Lemmon said to him, have you just tried, he's like, hey have you tried acting? It's like, I'm sorry, sir, if you think that gay people can't play straight, you have, like, you don't understand how for so many people it's, like, the role of a life, 
the role of their lifetime. Yes, and also if you think that a gay man can't play straight, you go over and watch the Thornbirds and then come back and talk to us. Mm-hmm. We are on Twitter <laughs> at 28 Days Later. <laughs> no, I mean, yeah, exactly. And yeah, and that wasn't even that long ago. And that's a fucking New York Times. It's like, ah, yes, this is a piece of journalism that people need to get their hands on. Mm-hmm. Well, and here's another thing that I thought was really interesting, like, a thing I didn't know about Nightmare 2 until watching this documentary and also reading some of the IMDb trivia, um, Hannah, you may or may not know this, that New Line Cinema was really, really struggling when the first Nightmare on Elm Street movie came out. And that movie was profitable, and then the franchise obviously made them a lot of money, and so a lot of people call, lovingly, call New Line Cinema the house that Freddy built. And what I read on IMDb, and they allude to this as well in the documentary, because Nightmare 2 did well, despite the fact that a lot of people were like, oh, I didn't like it because that guy was not macho enough for me. Um, Or like, I didn't like it because the final girl was a guy. This movie did well for the most part and like allowed the franchise to continue. Like if this movie had been a complete flop, they would have been like, okay, we're done with Nightmare on Elm Street. But it wasn't, and this movie sort of acted as a gateway for the rest of the franchise. And so I have decided from now on, because this is true, in my household, whenever we watch a movie and it says New Line Cinema at the beginning, my fiancé and I lean over to each other and go, the house that Freddie built. And from now on, I will be saying the house that Jesse built, because, like, this movie gets so much shit, and Mark Patton had his career taken from him because of like homophobic assholes however the existence of this movie is why you have all the other freddy movies that you like so like even if this one's not your favorite you wouldn't have any of the other ones without this one yeah exactly and uh, and actually oh sorry hannah i wanted to ask you this is like a weird tangent but it's related um I saw on the IMDb trivia that Robert Englund, according to IMDb, so who knows, somebody could have made it up, but Robert Englund apparently said this was his least favorite in the franchise, and I just wonder how you feel about that, since we've both seen the one where Freddy uh, haunts a fetus in utero. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I mean, I don't know about that. Um... (laughs) I mean, I, I did appreciate, you know, he was in the, he was in the documentary and he was pretty, um, outspoken in a more supportive stance. Yeah. He was very much like, I knew this movie was gay the whole time. And I was like, I was, in, I was playing it up. Like I yeah, was here yeah. for it. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I haven't seen all of the Nightmare on Elm Street movies, um, so I don't know, but yeah, that's all I have to say about that, I guess. <laughs> I really was hoping I would bait you into something more exciting since, again, we've both seen Nightmare on Elm Street 5 where it's like, and now Freddy is haunting an unborn baby and it's like, get out of here. Like, burn this movie to the ground. It's so bad. Yeah, well, and I also really feel like there's like a different kind of scale that you have to start judging them on. It's like the first one was so good and actually scary and much more serious, I guess. Mm-hmm. And then everything after that kind of took a, 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 
not a turn, but definitely lean into the camp a little more. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, Nightmare leans much more into the camp and the quips after number one. Although I will remind you that the first one does give us, I'm your boyfriend now, Nancy, with like the big gross tongue coming out of the phone. So like the roots were there, but you're absolutely correct that like the quippiness and the campiness definitely comes after this. So it would be different. I think it would be different if he said like, if he had ranked them and like, like just to say like, this one's not my favorite is like. No, he said this is his least favorite. Oh. Mm. Well. (laughs) (laughs) Um, but again, like who knows if that was like a quote, I do feel like it's very likely that a lot of people involved in this movie, they're, um, opinion and their party line on the movie has changed as it has become more of a cult classic. Yeah. So, like, maybe maybe Robert England said early on that this was not that this was his least favorite. Um, that doesn't make it okay. It's not okay that he was like, "I hate this movie," until people were like, "We like it though," and he's like, "Yeah, you're right. It was fun." <laughs> um, but you're right. Like a lot of the footage that is used of him in the documentary is is much more supportive than that fact would lead you to believe. So who knows where that quote came from? Yeah. Um, I was really interested. So this documentary uses a lot of footage of a professor named Andrew Scahill, who is a film professor, and he talks um, about horror movies specifically. And we see him sort of throughout the documentary. Um he lays out this framework that I found really interesting that I just wanted to touch upon because I think it's very relevant um, in this film, but I think in horror in general and has probably come up in other movies that we've talked about. He talks about the fact that there are three ways that queerness can, can emerge in horror. And he talks about the homosexual as the threat to others, specifically characters that are coded as queer who are sadistic or violent um, homosexual as threat to culture or homosexual as the monster within, which is, of course, um, more the case in this movie. Although I think we get the first thing, too, with the coach. Like, I think it's very interesting that the coach is coded pretty openly as queer, but the way they do that is by tying his queerness to him being sort of like a sadist and maybe a pedophile, which is not healthy or accurate. Um Right. But I was just interested in that idea that, like, especially in the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, like, queerness is showing up as the as the, uh, as the, the other in some way, and these are sort of the ways that that can happen. Yeah. Um, well, and I think, too, the idea of um, how oftentimes, like, in movies and TV shows, um, the gay characters are, like, the most lovable, but they always have to die. Hmm. Kind of, like, plays into that, too. It's, like, they can be there um, and really, like, prop up everybody else and, like, um, really, like, encourage everybody else. But oftentimes, like, their characters have to have really tragic ends. Yeah, they don't get to live. Right. Um, And I think as there's been more... uh, gay characters in horror movies, that's especially true. Um, But, yeah, like, this idea that um, 
that just that person existing is a threat to everybody else is a really interesting um, point to make. And one that I think is very evident in a lot of films. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, and I think in some ways is like, not in some ways, in a lot of ways is unfortunately a reflection of culture, right? That the idea, I think a lot of people um, for whom people's sexuality would not impact them in any way and like yeah. does not impact them in any way, it feels like a very real and personal threat in a way that it's not. Um, yeah. But it can feel that way. Absolutely. And it kind of, it like, um, it's also, yeah, like, um, for me personally, like, if a lot of reaction that I have received from people, um, often, like, straight men, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, like, if they find out that I'm, that I'm bisexual, they will often... Their first response is like, who do you like better? Or, mm-hmm. or oh, does that mean you love threesomes? And right. it's like, <laughs> it's like very, um, it's sort of like if you can't conceptualize someone's experience and you're, so you have to like put it into a box, like to make it make sense mm-hmm. to you. It's like mm-hmm. that. It's like I... Like, I have to know which one, like, I have to know, like, which way you, like, but which way do you really sway? Or, like, right. oh, but you really love this thing because, like, you know, because for me as the, like, straight man of the situation, that would be most ideal for me. Um, and I think it's about about not feeling insecure, right? Like, both of those questions also speak to mm. feeling like they are in control. Even if your sexuality is not a thing they understand, they can be in control of it. Because if you like threesomes, regardless of whether you want to have two guys or two girls there, right? Like, they still feel like they can be in control of that. And then if they know what their your preference is, they know whether or not you're a threat when they're trying to meet partners. So yeah. it's like, regardless, they want to keep you in a situation where they don't feel threatened by your sexuality. Whereas it's like, it's not really about you in any way. Yes. So I don't know why you need to make it about you. Yeah. And yeah. And I think, um, the, the fact that like this movie may be written with very overt, like a very overt, like homosexual, uh, theme throughout it is very evident that it is written by a straight man or someone who identifies as a straight man yeah it's really interesting so you and i talked when i had watched the documentary but it's you a, a lot of it reminds me of that too of like this is what gay dudes love right <laughs> right right exactly <laughs> um what you and i before you had seen the the documentary but i had watched it another quote from uh andrew scahill is he sort of talks about the idea that not this is not prescriptive but for some some queer identifying folks movies like this can be really gratifying in a way where i think his quote is you know you just you ignore the ending and just ignore the part where the queer monster runs amok And we talked specifically about Sleepaway Camp, which I think is a movie that you and I both really love and have a soft spot for. But it's a movie that similarly, like, 
can be seen in two very different ways because, spoiler alert for Sleepaway Camp, please skip ahead like a minute if you haven't seen it. <laughs> but the, the ending ends up being that Angela is a transgender girl um, and she is the one who's been killing people. And so y- there's a lot of ways you can read that, right? Like her uh, gender identity was prescribed to her. Like she was born male and did not like the choice to be identify as female was made for her. That was not her choice. So maybe this is coming out of like her anger and not being able to be herself or it is a transgender woman like exacting revenge against people who were cruel to her or it is making a trans person the monster. And so like there are a lot of ways to read the ending of that movie. And I think I, I watched a YouTube video recently that dear friend of the pod, Adam sent me and I will link to it in our show notes um, where someone is sort of talking about the ways that that movie can be read and the ways that, that ending can be read. And I thought of that a lot watching this documentary and rewatching Nightmare on Elm Street 2, where it's like there is um, in some ways until we get to the ending of this movie, there is like a, like a joy and sort of like a, I'm trying to think of the right word. There is like a sense of just sort of like wanting to be enveloped in sort of the, like the queerness is so not subtext. It's so just like this guy is like living his life he is doing really rad dances in his room and like hanging out with Grady like some of it is just like it feels so some of it feels so celebratory and then for it to end the way it does is really hurtful and so it's interesting like to the idea that like maybe you can sort of recontextualize or just take the ending out if especially for folks that watched this when they were young and it was like very informative for them personally to see this movie I totally get being like yeah I leave that part out because that's always been my experience as a straight woman is like I knew that this movie was one that a lot of fans didn't like and I've always loved this movie because it just seems to revel in how like lovely and gay it is Mm -hmm. that like and of course the ending does not hit me in the same way because that's not my identity but um I thought that that idea was interesting that like if you are a marginalized part of a marginalized group, even movies or characters that are problematic overall might really hit a soft spot for you because of the nostalgia of be- or because of seeing yourself represented in a movie. And I can certainly feel that way with female characters in horror and action movies. Oh, yeah, for sure. I, I think, um, you know, uh, Willow and Tara are a great example of that. Um, like, even though, uh, they sort of also fall into that trope of, you know, they, some, one of them has to die. (laughs) Yeah. Um, but like seeing them as a kid and seeing that on TV and being a kid and not understanding, like, or I guess understanding on some level, like why, (laughs) why certain scenes of them. Like, really made me feel like I had to pee. (laughs) (laughs) Hannah, this will be a perfect time for me to tell you, and I'm going to get the exact uh, verbiage wrong, but when you and I were driving back to the Midwest from visiting our parents, and I was listening to 
one of my favorite podcasts, Buffering the Vampire Slayer, did their episode on Once More with Feeling, which was a musical episode of their podcast in honor of the musical episode of television. They referred, they have a whole song about Willow and Tara uh, that I believe is called, oh God, I'm going to get this wrong. I think it's called Levitate a Lingus. And there's a whole thing about like, uh, how do you hit a target when it's moving? It's very delightful. We'll link to it in the show notes. Yeah, it's, it's really, really good. Very funny. It's really, really good because it's so funny, too. It's like, that was supposed to be like, oh, what could they be doing? But it's also like, how? How would that be happening? <laughs> exactly. And just to be clear, the song is actually called On Ren Fair Dresses and Levitate a Lingus. That's amazing. That's great. <laughs> So, uh, so yeah. Um, Hannah, what else from this movie did you want to talk about? Is there anything that we haven't covered? Um, I think, um, the dance sequence is pure gold. Um, and one that I hope to recreate one day. Um, and I just also really loved the documentary for how, um, how it also highlighted areas, and it feels kind of fitting, too, for this to be our first week. Um, I just said reek, but our first week here is that... She's trying so hard to keep her burps in, folks, but she's... Yeah, I've been talking for a while, it's still and I had reek, a soda. It still it's reeks really over there. <laughs> um, but to also, like, highlight areas of the horror community that... I mean, I love anything where it can really go into, like, the horror community and, and how it is such a community and all the different, like, learning that there was, like, a whole-ass theater in New Hampshire where they do this, like, show every year and they rework it every year to be, like, a little bit more of a different theme. But, like, it's very specific, you know, it's, and I think it's so cool that, like, the horror genre in general has the ability to have all of these different pockets that can be so specific and yet resonate with so many people so well that there's like, there's just like this, this community with so many different little subgroups that you can be a part of and feel really seen by. Um, And so I really also appreciated that element of the movie too, just like highlighting how great, how great that is. Absolutely. And I really, what really I've been sitting with, I think the most since watching this documentary is how powerful uh, our stories are, right? Like we're not, I'm sure that everyone listening to this has had an experience where something has happened to you where you were hurt or you weren't listened to or your story was not the one that everyone heard. And I found it so powerful that so much of this documentary is really about, and so much of what hit me in this film is Mark Patton's certainty with his story and his truth, right? Like we get a quote from him in the very beginning that like, this is my, not, this is not my theory. This is other people, but like, this is my truth. And throughout we are getting to hear his story And it really just highlights for me how important it is for people to have their stories heard and just for each of us to believe in our story 
and hold fast to it, whether or not it is sort of what's accepted by the larger group. I think especially, you know, not just in horror fandom, but I think in horror fandom, if you are a woman or you are queer or you are not white, uh, it's not always, not all of the horror spaces are always going to feel the most comfortable for you. And I know that I can speak for myself that like, I absolutely had an experience early on as a horror fan, um, as a female horror fan that was very alienating, um, in which like my voice was sort of like taken away from me. And so I, I just really want to encourage anyone listening to this, like, just remember that the fact that the dominant story doesn't reflect yours doesn't mean that your story is wrong. Um, and I just wanted to let us go on this quote that Mark Patton says towards the end that just like, I want to write in all of my journals and put on my bathroom mirror. I just loved it. He says, they can throw rocks at you and you can still come out of it a winner. Um, so whatever, whatever that quote is resonating with for you right now, just remember that your story is valid regardless of whether or not everyone else says it is. And just hold on to that because it's powerful. I like, I'm just, I was like, what do I say to that? That's just so cool. <laughs> And now to Hannah with the weather. Now, well, now to Hannah with in later news this week. Oh, yeah. So new listeners. Da-da-da-da, da-da-da-da. If you're a new listener, you may not know that the way we wrap what up our episodes... What if we have literally no new listeners and all of our old listeners are listening to this and they're like, wow, we get nothing. They're like, we get it. We've been here since um, day one and we get no shout outs. Here's the thing. OG listeners will know what I mean when I say some of us leave our stains in high school and some of us leave our stains later in life. <laughs> if that quote doesn't make sense to you, you might be wondering what Hannah's talking about when she says in Ladyer news. Every week we wrap up our episode with a piece of news that is highlighting uh, women and queer folks and non-binary folks. And uh, this week we have a really exciting piece of news, which I think a lot of people will already be aware of. But just in case you're not, we want to put it on your radars. So Hannah, this was your idea this week. Why don't you jump in? Well, also when you said that too, that also reminded me that I kind of like tag in another little piece of news which is just that um because i was trying to get sophie and jeremy to watch z-way when they were here that um i think it was yesterday z-way got the official green light for season two hell yes all right yes everybody watch that it's amazing um and listen to her on all the other things that she does um but um ripped from the headlines of harper's bazaar Shikari Richardson is now the fastest woman in America. Now, Hannah, I am going to pump the brakes a little bit just to say that uh, I did look up the specifics on how to pronounce her name, and it's actually Shikari, like our friend in elementary school. Oh, Kerry. okay. K-E-R-R-Y. Um, but yes, I want to talk about, there's so much we can talk about with Shikari Richardson because she's so fucking fast and she's so fucking fierce. Like, and she's so Can fucking take, young. She's 21. She is 21. I want to read this quote to you. Again, to listeners, your story is important and 
like, I say this as someone who is pretty young for being in my field, it can feel really intimidating sometimes. So I, this quote really like hit me in my heart. She said, I use my age as honestly an intimidating factor. If you've been doing this and I step on the scene, I am letting you know I respect you for putting on your uh, putting on for our sport. But at the end of the day, when we get on this line, what you've been doing, you have to do that against me. Everyone take that energy into your week next week. If you have not watched any videos of Shakari Richardson in the Olympic trials, watch the videos, watch her statements afterwards. Um, Hannah, I don't know if you knew this. Um, so people who have seen her, she finished the trials. She has like bright orange hair and a bright blue running suit. Um, and this is, this just like really warmed my soul. Uh, the article I read says the decision on which color usually just comes to her before a race, before the biggest meet of her life, she let her girlfriend choose. She, Carrie Richardson says, she said it just spoke to her. The fact that it was just loud and vibrant. That's who I am. She just wanted me to be able to make a statement. Mm-hmm. I did. I did see that quote specifically. I want to be like her almost... when I grow up. She is so much younger than me, but I want to be her when I grow up. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I read that um, while I was pooping and I almost fell off the toilet. Kind of like oh when I God. kind of like hit the, in the bathroom at the movie theater. <laughs> Um, you really need to be careful because uh, I know from experience that you use a poop stool and I would hate for you to fall from such a height. <laughs> for anyone who's wondering, a poop stool is like a squatty potty, but I'm too cheap to buy a squatty potty. So I just got a collapsible stool from like Dollar General, which for everyone who doesn't use one, you should use one. It's life changing. Yeah, honestly, Hannah brought her poop stool when she <laughs> visited us. We should just call it a stool stool. Um Hannah brought her stool when she visited my fiance and I at Christmas, and it was such a game changer that I have been saying ever since then that we need to buy one, and then I forgot. So now I'm definitely going to buy a stool for when I poop. You should have told me because I keep an extra one in my car in case I travel and forget to bring mine, so I could have given you that one. (laughs) Oh my gosh, you're adorable. Also, I want to make it our goal that our first sponsor will be whatever company makes the collapsible stools at Dollar Tree. It's like, this is for helping your toddler brush their teeth or really helping you push out a floater. Whatever you need to do, we are here. We're here for you. It's actually really funny because um, I listened to the uh, this podcast uh, with uh, that's hosted by Mitra Jahari and um, Joel Kim Booster. And Joel Kim Booster on that show was literally all the time talking about these, like, uh, basically, like, dietary supplements. I don't know if you call them that exactly, but... Specifically to help you with, like, people who have GI issues, such as myself, um, and in particular, like, uh, a lot of, like, gay men um, try to regulate their gastrointestinal situation on purpose, like, for, depending on what kind of sex life they have. Um mm-hmm. And so he literally plugged it on the show so much that they became a sponsor, and it was, like, he had a whole thing about, like... Just what a what a point of pride that was that he plugged it so much that he they finally became a sponsor. Okay, goals. We need to find out what the brand of poop pot poop pot. 
what the hell? <laughs> Poop stool you have is. And Hannah, I'm now realizing that we got so excited for in later news that we did not use our incredibly scientific, very specise, precise and specific <laughs> measuring tool to rate Scream Queen. We better so do this quick scale- because we're both falling apart. <laughs> We, we're doing great. On a scale of one to five Bloody Marys, how many Bloody Marys would you give Scream Queen, My Nightmare on Elm Street? I would give it four Bloody Marys um, because it was beautiful. It was un- inspirational. It really brought um, a new perspective to my eyes. Um, but it wasn't like necessarily the most groundbreaking documentary I've ever seen. Okay, fair, fair. And I will give it four Bloody Marys with one finger knife glove. Because if you're going to drink Bloody Marys, that glass is so cold. And that nice leather glove is really going to insulate your hand (laughs) from the cold icy glass. Um, The blades will probably become a hazard as you drink your four Bloody Marys, but... I believe in you guys. We've got this. You could also use all those blades to really, like, go to a Bloody Mary bar and load them up, like, for with all the garnishes. Exactly. And when all of the, like, horseradish and shit starts to settle, you just use one of your finger blades to stir it back up. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, Hannah, we have a tradition here at the show that new listeners might not be aware of. And I don't want to tell them about it. So do you have anything that you'd like to tell the listeners so that they can learn about how we say goodbye here? I do. It is, just so everyone knows, how dramatic can I make this? Always pee after sex! Clink! Boom! Nailed it! The Anatomy of a Scream, Pod Squad.